Jesus' friend Lazarus, who lived in Bethany with his two sisters, became ill. And his sisters sent a message to Jesus to come. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had, was already in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away. <clears throat> and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. But even now, I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live though they die. Do you believe this? Martha, she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. When Mary heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. The Jews who were in the house with her, consoling her, saw Mary get up and go out quickly, and they followed her because they believed she was going to the tomb to weep. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the blind man, opened the eyes of the blind man, not have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, greatly disturbed, came to the womb, tomb. I thought I was going to do that. <laughs> Came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying across it. <clears throat> Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha said, Lord, there is a stench. He's already been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew you always hear me. But I said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, that they may believe you have sent me. When he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with claws, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and saw what Jesus did, believed in him. The word of God for the world. The Lord be with you. Today, I want to invoke the memory of Ralph McLean. I don't know if any of you know that name, but he was teaching in the religion department at Meredith College when I entered there as a freshman. And one of the teaching methods that he used was repetition, especially with things he wanted us to remember. So I have this memory of repetition that Ralph McLean did around the word believe. Okay, so I want to hear what a definition of the word believe in the room. Herb, you got one, I'll bet. What does the word believe mean? Hmm, hmm, Charles. I call, I'm sorry, I, I, if you don't mean to call on you, you better hide. <laughs> Trust. Trust, huh. Philip, what do you think? Okay, anybody else got a definition to believe? I called on those who've been to seminary now. Um, Acceptance? Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Let me tell you the definition Ralph McLean gave us. It was live by. Live by. So I want to I invoke Ralph McLean, and every time I use the word believe, I'd like for you to say back to me, live by. God, that's what he did in the classroom. Believe. We got it. You might have a lot of time chances to say that, but you might have to really listen now. Just hint, hint. <laughs> Marcus Borg writes that prior to the 16th century, whenever the word believe was used, it wasn't used in relationship to affirming a certain concept or a creed. The object being believed was not a statement, but a person. When Jesus said, do you believe this? I read it to mean, do you believe me? So the evangelist, the writer of the Gospel of John, ends the Gospel with these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And through this believing, you may have life in his name. Now you see why I remember that, don't you? (laughs) You say it a few times, it kind of sticks. So the sign in today's reading, thank you Joyce Ruth, the restoring of life to Lazarus is the seventh and the last in the Gospel of John. There are others. You know the signs. He turns water into wine. Uh, The story of the feeding of the five thousands. These are stories that reveal who Jesus is so that we may believe in him. The Gospels only record two times, though, when Jesus is brought to tears. Once over Jerusalem and the other over the death of Lazarus. So even though there are only two references to Jesus weeping, we can assume that Jesus knew grief and loss, and perhaps he understood it better than most of us. Because immediately after he was born, his parents whisked him off to Egypt to escape fear of death, so there must have been lots of stories of death and murder that he had heard throughout his life. And as an adult, he preached to a people who had a history of a loss of land, a loss of governance, a loss of freedom, of hope, and for some of them, a loss of faith. Security, like you and I know it, was nothing. No people knew it then. Very few people knew it, and most envied it. So women had ten children in that day in order to have maybe four survive. So he knew loss and he knew grief. And all of us have known loss, not just the loss of a cell phone or a loss in the basketball court that our South Carolina neighbors are feeling today, but losses of significance, a death or the equivalent, a divorce maybe. A broken covenant, a friendship, or the loss of health, a home. Have a dear, dear friend who's experienced four miscarriages, so maybe that was an intended slip of your tongue this morning, Joyce, with the word womb. Her grief has been so heavy. The worst grief I have felt in my life was the death of my father. And he, he died at the age of 56. So, so young. Or the time I became the casualty of our Baptist battles in our state and was fired from the ministry position I held. Both of those losses took me so long to grieve. You have your own. In today's text, two sisters are surrounded by their faith community and deeply grieving the death of their brother. Did you hear what they said to Jesus? This is my paraphrase. Jesus, what took you so long? (laughs) If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Why weren't you here? We sent for you. Well, Martha says it first, but Mary again says it verbatim. And then the whole community that's gathered around them repeated again. If you just been here. <clears throat> Have you ever felt like asking Jesus that question? Where were you? Where were you? What, what took you so long? 
Not only do I get permission from today's text to ask the question, I actually see today's text as an invitation to ask it. Where were you, Jesus, when cancer ravaged her nine-year-old body? Where were you when the abuse was happening? What took you so long? Where were you when the Holocaust graves were being dug? Where were you when civil war ravaged our sons and our daughters? So the next movement in the story that I notice is Jesus' invitation then next to Mary and Martha. He says to them, show me. Show me. He invites them to take him to the place, not only physically, but I think it's the place that's also emotionally and spiritually where their grief lay. Well, I invited my dear friend with the four miscarriages to do just that, to take Jesus with her to the place where her sorrow, where she felt it the most, where she had hidden it. Well, she couldn't talk to me for days after that, after I I invited her to do that. You know, it's really, really a hard thing to do, to take Jesus' hand and say to him, come sit with me and I'll show you where I've tucked all that sadness away. Let me show you all the disappointment. Come, Jesus, I'm going to take you to my place of despair and shame and weakness. But in this text, that's the invitation I hear Jesus giving each of us. And then what happens when Jesus goes there with Mary and Martha is also overwhelming. He sobs. He doesn't just shed a few tears. He sobs. And his crying calls me to examine how much time I've really allowed myself to cry. Well, you allow yourself to cry in the sanctuary, obviously, with all the tear, all the tissue in the sanctuary. But do you allow yourself time to cry with the grief that you carry? Have I really allowed myself to truly feel the anguish and pain, or am I detached from it? I change the topic. I keep myself busy so that I can't feel. Jesus invites us to show him where it hurts. Show him. And take him there. And in that place, he joins us as we shed tears of sorrow and grief. And the tears they shed together bind them to each other in the same way that we remember and know that we are bound to one another when we share grief. One theologian says that it's from this comforting, fortifying grief that Jesus finds within himself the strength to restore his friend. That Jesus' power to restore life is not like the power of a magician, but the power of a profoundly human being whose healing power came from his ability to care about people. So the seeds of healing, of recreation, of hope, of comfort, and resurrection lie buried in the deep, rich soil of compassion. 
So the work of grief that is ours to do means coming to terms with what we've lost, knowing that we can nothing we hold and cherish can we hold on to forever. And the work of grief that heals is a binding of ourselves to Jesus, perhaps the same way that Mary and Martha did, with asking hard questions, with showing him our grief and weeping with him. In so doing, we learn that having a relationship with Jesus doesn't protect us from experiencing loss. It's not a safeguard from sorrow, but in our sorrow we encounter Jesus who knows sorrow and suffering and who loves us with a love that defies death. And it defies death in the here and in the now. So in that conversation Jesus had with Martha prior to him restoring Lazarus to life, Jesus said to Martha, you don't have to wait for the end. I am right now. Resurrection and life. That's Peterson's, Eugene Peterson's translation. You don't have to wait till the end, that apocalyptic kind of time. He goes to the place where Lazarus is buried. He commands the stone to be removed. And there are protests of the anticipated odor. And without having to wait for this apocalyptic end of time. And with some onlookers heads turned to avoid the stench. Jesus speaks and Lazarus emerges wrapped from head to toe in burial clothes. So what's our challenge this morning our invitation. Our challenge is to live by these words of Jesus. I am right here, right now, resurrection and life. The one who lives by me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives by me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? And what does this living by look like? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Can you bear witness to it or testimony? Have you seen it? Well, I witnessed this kind of faith a few months ago. It's been several weeks ago now. I decided to visit a predominantly black church in Asheville one Sunday. It seemed like almost every week there was devastating news of violence against and aggressive incarceration of black bodies. Or officers were being acquitted or not being charged who had taken these lives. So I wanted to go and support the black community in worship. But there was little mention of this in white church. Anytime I've been in white church, there's not been that much mention of it. I couldn't see how the black community was going to be able to praise when so many of their young people were getting killed on the streets or locked up or addicted to substances. But they did. The morning prayers addressed God the way maker. With the efforts of government, families, social service agencies, and the church insufficient to meet the challenges of the day, It was affirming that God's arms are not so short that they cannot reach out to help us in troubling times. When we can't keep going, those arms are there to catch us. 
A visiting pastor stood up just to bring greetings, and he admonished everyone that day, anytime God blesses you to be alive, you ought to be grateful. Well, I listened, thinking about black families who for generations never knew when they lay down at night if they'd wake up to see their families or be jerked out of their beds to satisfy some master's sexual desires or be sold for a handsome profit. I listen, anytime God blesses you to be alive, you ought to be grateful. I listen, and I thought about mothers and wives and sons and daughters of those whose lives have been taken. And I heard this admonition with fresh ears and fresh eyes, knowing how often I've taken life for granted. And then the group sang, you've heard this song, God's right on time. Could they be making that affirmation and not the one that Martha and Mary made? What took you so long? (laughs) Have they, as a people, known and experienced so much loss that in order to go on, they've truly learned how to rely on God? I think there's something we can learn from the black church. I know something I can learn from the black church. I'll speak for Paula. So last Sunday... I was reminded in a homily that sin in the Gospel of John is not defined as moral failure like stealing or lying or cheating. That is not what sin is defined as in the Gospel of John. That sin is clearly the failure of the hearers of the good news to believe that Jesus is the revelation of God. It's the failure to believe that Jesus is the revelation of God. Sin is our inability to affirm, as did Martha, that Jesus right now is resurrection and life. And in our inability to make this affirmation, many of us are walking around alive yet still wearing our grave clothes. Oh, my friends, let us hear again the gospel message the invitation of Jesus so we can ask him anything, anything. We can take him to where our sorrows and our pains are hidden and tucked away. The invitation to let him weep with us. For we are not alone in our grief. Perhaps If we allow Jesus to accompany us when we grieve, we'll be able to, with the help of all the others around us, get rid of those grave clothes. Perhaps my prayer and yours today is, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. For forgiveness is God's habit, isn't it? Thanks be to God.